you take your Bibles, please turn in them to Matthew 5, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, the first book of the New Testament. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the shelf just underneath the pew in front of you. We'll be this morning in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to ask that we read verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these weeks we spent together in the Beatitudes at Matthew 5. It bless us now as we come to the end of this portion of Scripture. We pray, Father, that what we have not you would give us, what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us, for Jesus' sake, amen. This morning we come to the end of our study of the Beatitudes. And though our exposition of these Beatitudes is coming to an end, I pray that we never lose sight of them. I don't remember ever enjoying uh, studying for preaching more than I have enjoyed uh, studying for these sermons on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And more than that, I am not aware of ever being more anxious that the Lord would help us as a church body know and apply His Word in our lives as individual Christians and in our life together as a church. If you were to ask the question, what should a Christian look like? What should a Christian be like? It would be a perfectly acceptable answer to go uh, to Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Uh, and to say that those who are the children of God, those who are followers of Christ, they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They're meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're the peacemakers. They are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And if you were to ask, what should the church of the Lord Jesus Christ look like? What characteristics and traits should mark the church corporately? I think we could hardly find a better list in all the Scriptures than that very same list that we have here in this passage. This is the life, friends, that is blessed of God. 
Uh, this is the life that is owned of God, that meets with His approval. This is the blessed life, the virtues and traits we must pursue as followers of Christ. Of course, this is not the doorway into the kingdom of heaven. We come into the kingdom of heaven by being born again. We come into the kingdom of heaven through new birth. But once in the kingdom, what should our life look like? What should the life of a Christ follower look like? And it is indeed these virtues that Jesus is holding out for us in this passage. We come this morning to the last of the Beatitudes contained in verse 10. And you'll notice, if you look at the text with me, verses 3 and 10, how many commentators have observed, form a kind of sandwich in this passage, a kind of introduction and conclusion in this section in Matthew 5. You'll notice the same reward is offered in both cases. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first of the Beatitudes. Those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then in verse 10, a similar thing is said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have these promises that bracket on both ends these Beatitudes. In verses 11 through 12, then, I understand to be an elaboration on that last of the Beatitudes in verse 10. The theme of these verses we'll consider this morning in verses 10 through 12 is Christian persecution, which Jesus looks on apparently as a blessed thing, or at least something that results in our blessing. You imagine how this would have shot Jesus' hearers. Here has come Israel's Messiah. Here has come her king. Here has come the new Adam, uh, the new David. And here he is before those who are his people. And he's announcing the principles of his kingdom. And he tells them, not blessed are you when you triumph and exalt over those who have been persecuting you, but rather blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder, does that shock you? as a Christian, to think of your own situation in this way. Well, let's leave it to understand what Jesus is telling us here in these verses. I propose we divide them under three headings. Let's consider, first of all, the cause of this persecution, and secondly, the nature of this persecution, and then thirdly and finally, the Christian response to persecution. So we have the cause of the persecution, the nature of this persecution, then the Christian response to this persecution. Look with me, if you would at that first heading, the cause of this persecution. Let's notice the cause. Look again at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? What's the cause? For righteousness' sake. What's the cause in verse 10? Very simply, for righteousness' sake. Look with me then at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What's the cause in verse 11? Why are people persecuting and reviling and uttering false things against these people? It's on Christ's account. Okay, so I would suggest these two thoughts, for righteousness' sake and on Christ's account, we're meant to see as parallel or more or less as one thought or one cause. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake and to be persecuted on Christ's account, they're one and the same thing. So if we wanted to harmonize the two and summarize Jesus' point here about the cause of this persecution, we might put it this way. Jesus is talking about persecution that has as its principal cause our righteous conduct rendered in allegiance and obedience to Him. I'll say that again. What's the cause of this persecution? 
Jesus is talking about persecution that has as its principal cause our righteous conduct rendered in allegiance and obedience to Him. Jesus makes the assumption that by following Him, we will live certain, a certain kind of distinct life, a life that is characteristic of all those who are followers of the Lord Jesus. We will devote ourselves to Him and to obedience to Him, and we will walk in the righteousness that He calls us to, and this righteous life as defined by Him, which all Christians are meant to live and walk in, will become the grounds or the cause of the persecution of the Lord's people. Okay, now what will this look like, boots on the ground, to be persecuted for our righteous conduct and our obedience uh, rendered in allegiance to Christ Himself? What will it look like for us to experience that kind of persecution? Well, first let me tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like me going up the road after the service this morning to Lowe's Foods and to bring with me a bullhorn and to stand in aisle nine and to shout at every old lady who walks by, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I'm forcibly removed from Lowe's Foods and my family has their membership at Lowe's revoked, I'm not suffering for righteousness' sake. Uh, if, if someone on social media, on Facebook, let's say, uh, uh, comes out and announces that they're transitioning their gender from being a biological man to now identifying as a woman, and I go there to their Facebook wall or to the comments section, and I just blow it up with verses about uh, the wrath of God and a bunch of sarcastic memes about the LGBTQ community, uh, and I'm blocked on Facebook by that person, I'm not being censured for my Christian righteousness. I'm being censured for being a jerk, uh, but not for identifying with the Lord and living in accord uh, with His Word. If I get swept along by some bizarre conspiracy theory about the latest political event, and if I begin to eagerly proselytize all of my friends and relations and acquaintances, and they begin to withdraw from me socially because they think I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, I cannot console myself by saying, well, thus they persecuted the prophets who were before me. Now, of course, these examples, though somewhat humorous, I have a serious concern that underlies them. There is a kind of Christian who is all too eager to adopt a certain kind of martyr complex. Uh, for these people, any bit of opposition they receive for anything in their life, they're eager to identify as Christian persecution. Uh, some Christians, for example, are just temperamentally awkward. Uh, you who have been in Christian circles for many years, in different churches, different Christian settings, there are a lot of oddballs in the faith, aren't there? There's a lot of us that are really awkward. And uh, there are some people who will think that in a Christian setting you can compound your awkwardness. The people will not be self-aware at all. They'll say the most awkward things. They don't know how to interact in social situations. And they will act as though if they are ostracized for their social awkwardness, that they're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But that is not what Jesus is talking about here. And people shouldn't bully you or withdraw from you just because you're awkward, right? But even still, if we're just socially awkward people and odd people, we shouldn't console ourselves saying, well, we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake because people don't want to hang out with me more. Uh, there are other types of Christians uh, who will develop the most fringe political views uh, that have nothing inherently to do with orthodox Christianity. Uh, but as soon as those fringe political views are opposed, they will go to this text for consolation. Uh, friends, we need to learn to distinguish between the views we hold because they are required by biblical Christianity and the views we hold that are more a reflection merely 
of our political preferences and prejudices. In his commentary on this passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, if you choose to suffer politically, go on and do so. But do not have a grudge against God if you find that this beatitude, this promise is not verified in your life. The beatitudes and the promise refer specifically to suffering for righteousness sake. Oh, may God give us grace and wisdom and understanding to discriminate between our political prejudices and our spiritual principles. I know this text is no consolation to us if we are just plain awkward or if we develop extreme political views. It's no consolation to you if you are persecuted simply for being rude or obnoxious. And I'll add, it's no consolation to you if you are abrasive and militant and aggressive and quarrelsome. If people respond poorly to you on that account, don't think you are experiencing the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. That word can be translated busybody. The kind of person who obnoxiously just intrudes upon the other affairs of men and tries to influence things and cajole them and move things around. We're not to suffer for that kind of a thing. These are not the kinds of things Jesus has in mind in our text when he speaks of being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And friends, I'll just say, the world has plenty of reasons to oppose us on the basis of the gospel itself. Uh, We need not add more reasons uh, to oppose or to offend or to alienate. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the Lord's disciples were persecuted not because they were difficult or overzealous, but simply because they were righteous. We are not to do anything that calls for persecution, but by just being like Christ, persecution becomes inevitable. Okay, but now positively, that's negatively what this doesn't mean to suffer on account of Christ and the righteousness we live in obedience to Him. But what is in fact in view when Jesus speaks of being persecuted on account of righteousness, on His account? What does it look like? Boots on the ground. I think we could say this. Jesus has in mind, in verses 10 through 12, when His disciples become the objects of persecution as a direct result of their honest and sincere devotion and obedience to Him. When obeying Jesus and living as he's called us to live, become the direct ground of our persecution. So some examples. Young men, your friends make a crude sexual joke at school that objectifies the young woman who just walked by, and you don't laugh or join in because you know Christ doesn't call us to such crude joking and coarse speech that would objectify a young woman. And then your friends mock you. And they say, what, what are you, gay? Why don't you join in with us? Uh, Jesus says, if you are persecuted on that account, and if your friends start to withdraw from you because you won't enter in on such crude speech and crude joking, he says, blessed are you. Young ladies, you decide in obedience to Christ, you're not going to flaunt your bodies before others and try to incite the sexual interest of a boy by the way you dress, and the other girls make you feel like a prude, and you begin to decline in popularity. Jesus says, blessed are you. Businessmen and women, your colleagues, let you in on a tip for evading taxes or somehow cheating to get ahead. And you say, thank you, but listen, I'm a Christian and I just, I can't do that. That's not honest. That's not 
right. And then they feel censured by your piety. They begin to ostracize you. Jesus says, blessed are you. Parents, your son or daughter demands that you affirm their new gender identity and that you give approval to their new lifestyle. And you say, honey, I, I just I can't do that. And they cut you out, as painful as that would be. Jesus says, blessed are you. The government decides that gathering to worship in the name of Jesus is illegal. And to identify with certain religious groups is outlawed. But you meet anyway because it is impossible for Christ's people to forsake his worship. And persecution comes to you and your pastor and your church on that account. Jesus says, blessed are you. You're in a situation in which the demands of Christian integrity and honesty and virtue and obedience require you to speak out. Whether it's in the workplace or in the family or even in the church or at the school or among your friends, and you are hated because of it. These are the kinds of things, the kinds of causes that will invite the world's persecution. And Jesus says, if you suffer on that account, you are blessed. Jesus has in view the kind of persecution that will come to his disciples as a direct result of their commitment to obey him. That is the cause of the persecution in this text. When our obedience and our righteousness encroaches on the world's value system, when our virtue would seem to indict the sinful behavior of those around us. D.A. Carson says this, quote, genuine righteousness condemns people by implication. Small wonder that people often lash out in retaliation. Christ's disciples by their righteous living thus divide men. Men are either repelled from or drawn to our precious Savior. Friends, when our Christian moral system comes into conflict with that of this world and persecution comes as the result, then we come within the blessedness of this passage. And friends, I'll just say before leaving this point, don't expect that your persecutors are going to do you the credit of saying, well, you know why I'm persecuting you. It's, it's for your righteousness. It's because you're so good. And that's why I'm per- It's because you're such a faithful Christian that I'm persecuting you and reviling you. No, they won't do you that credit. Jesus will tell his disciples in John 16, I think it is, uh, that there will come a time when those who persecute you and put you in prison will think they're rendering worship to God. Rather, they'll think they're righteous in persecuting you. And they'll call you names like bigot and cruel. They'll malign you. No, they won't do you the credit of letting you believe you are suffering for righteousness' sake, but it will be for righteousness' sake, and God will see, and God will in his time reward. All right, that's point number one, the cause of this persecution. Consider with me, secondly, the nature of this persecution. What's this persecution like according to these verses? What is Jesus anticipating as he tells his disciples they'll suffer in this way? They'll be blessed if they suffer for this cause. What kind of persecution is going to come? What kind of suffering? What do we learn from verse 10? Blessed are those who are, the word is persecuted, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so it's just stated in verse 10 that you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That word persecuted, verb, is a very broad term. Uh, it can encompass a lot of different types of things. Uh, it can mean to pursue, to persecute, to target someone with hostility and maltreatment. And uh, this word does not require that the type of persecution be one particular type of persecution. So it can encompass, for example, physical-type persecution, like inflicting pain on your body uh, with whips, with cords, with clubs, 
It could include martyrdom. Uh, It could also include persecution that comes uh, through words that are used, things that are said. It's a very broad term, and it encompasses all kinds of things. But verse 11 gets a little more specific. Look at verse 11, the nature of the persecution. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Same word as in verse 10. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we have now three verbs, revile, persecute, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. There's a reviling. What is reviling? What does it mean to revile? We don't use that word very often. It could be translated to reproach or to mock. To revile is to speak derisively or abusively toward or about someone. To speak with unjust censure and disdain about another person. And we're told, of course, we're not to revile in return when we're reviled. Reviling of all kinds is off limits for Christians. Reviling is unjust censure and disdain about another person. To revile is to speak with reproach, uh, to speak with mockery, to speak to injure. That's reviling. Then there's that word persecute again, same word that is used in verse 10, that broad term that could encompass all kinds of forms of persecution. And then Jesus speaks of those who utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, verse 11. This is generally slander. This is the world calling your good deeds evil. This is false accusations. This is maligning you and painting you as a wicked person rather than one who is righteous and imputing to you acts and thoughts and motives that are false. The nature of the persecution. Here's what I conclude based on verses 10 and 11 about the nature of the persecution in view here. This persecution may come in various forms. It could be physical beating. It could be death by martyrdom. The word persecution is certainly used that way in other places. That word persecute used in verse 10, verse 11 is used to describe the Apostle Paul and the way he treated the church when he was formerly a Saul, the persecutor of the church, where he was hauling men and women off to prison. He was breathing out murders and threats against the church. It encompassed that kind of persecution. When Stephen was killed, he was persecuted in the way that this word is used. When Peter and the other apostles were beaten and imprisoned for preaching Christ, they were persecuted. That idea is included in Jesus' words here. Nothing about Jesus' language here precludes that kind of idea. But then I would conclude that I think the emphasis of this passage, much like the emphasis actually of the majority of texts that speak about persecution in the Bible, have to do with words. Have to do with words. Words that are somehow used to harm us. Words that are used by others to inflict pain. I think it's the words spoken against God's people that are the focus of this passage. We need not limit this passage to words, but they are the focus of this passage. Reviling, slander, maligning, reproach, false accusations, character assassination, mockery, threatening, derision. Like I said, actually the majority of texts in the New Testament from Jesus and the apostles speak of persecution in this kind of a way. The words that are spoken against God's people, which means you don't have to be martyred to be considered persecuted. You don't have to show physical scars to be regarded 
as persecuted. Take Peter, for example. Uh, Peter was there on the mountain hearing these words from the Lord. He was sitting before the Lord, taking in the Lord's glorious teaching. Then 30 years later, he wrote a letter that we call the letter of 1 Peter. He wrote a letter to the churches in Asia Minor, which increasingly I see as a kind of exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. The parallels are remarkable. And in 1 Peter, Peter speaks again and again to the kind of opposition and hostility that Christians will experience from the world. And his focus is always on words. So he says, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 3 Verse 13, now who is it to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, words, those who revile your good behavior, words, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. First Peter 4, 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they not whip you with cords, they malign you. They malign you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see Peter's emphasis. The suffering and persecution the Christians would endure from their conduct and their behavior in the world, in public, would be that they will speak against you as evildoers. They slander you. They revile your good behavior. They malign you because you do not join with them in their sin. They insult you for the name of Christ. No whips, no clubs, no beatings, no physical scars, but words. Reviling, slander, reproach, mockery, derision. All persecution for Christ's sake. Some people may not think it's real suffering or real persecution until blood is drawn. What can words do after all? Thomas Jefferson said that, right? He, he, he talks about how people can say whatever they want. It neither, uh, what, picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Kind of the popular take on that is what you learned in school, right? Some of your teachers taught you this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words can never harm me. Uh, Friends, that's not true at all. Words harm us all the time. In fact, I'm willing to wager for many of you here this morning, the most difficult things you've ever experienced in your life and the deepest insecurities you walk around with that you brought in with you here today are not the result of hands that were laid on you, but words that were spoken to you. We lined up one after another just get in the microphone and so go, the most traumatizing or difficult or painful thing we've ever experienced in our lives. I'd be willing to wait here for most of us. It's going to be bound up in words that were said to us. The betrayal of someone we loved. Uh, public slander we've endured. Uh, how, when, before a gathering of people, false things were said about us that damaged our reputation in the eyes of others. 
verbal abuse from a parent or a spouse, censure and scorn poured on us by loved ones who no longer want anything to do with us. Perhaps it's the blasphemies uttered by an unbelieving child, the verbal hostility of a friend or relative who wants nothing to do with you or your God. It's words. It's words. Oh, they cut like swords. They deeply injure us and pierce us. They can cause the deepest pain. And Jesus is saying His people will endure this kind of persecution on account of their righteousness, on account of their devotion and obedience to Christ, reviling, maligning, uttering false things about you on account of our allegiance to Christ. I wonder how many of us have experienced this kind of persecution. It's possible that some of the youngest Christians among us have yet to experience this kind of a thing, but I would wager for anyone here who's been in the way for 10 years or more, uh, you've experienced this already. And Jesus is saying, if you walk with him long enough and faithfully enough, you will experience this kind of opposition. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You may not avoid this kind of persecution as a Christian. It is not the exceptional experience of a few super-Christians, but the normal experience of all. And by that, I don't mean that we as Christians walk through life with an unending barrage of this kind of persecution on a daily basis, but I do mean to say if you follow Christ faithfully for years, you will indeed experience this in your Christian walk. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, and every Christian is to expect opposition. Those who hunger for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. Isn't that something? I want to emphasize this to all of us, but especially here this morning to younger Christians among us. I'm just eager that you count the cost of following Jesus, that you recognize there's, there's no way to kind of be betwixt and between with the world and Jesus. Well, what I'll do is I'll kind of have Christ and church and churchy things, but I'll also keep one foot over here in the world, and it's, I can make that work. Uh, no, these systems are at odds with one another. Uh, friends, our Lord, who we embrace and we worship and we follow, died on the cross. He was hated. He was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the one you profess to follow. Do not think you can have Jesus and the world, or that you could follow Jesus faithfully and still court the world's approval. At some point along the way, our allegiance to Christ and our commitment to following Him in true righteousness will come into conflict with the system of this world. John tells us all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That has no home in Christianity. And you as a Christian have no home in that world. They hated him. They will hate us. 
Another commentator says, if the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. In other words, does your faith and your manner of life present anything whatsoever to be opposed by the world? Again, I want to emphasize, you don't go searching for this kind of persecution. It'll come to you in time. But do you give off anything in your allegiance to Christ that invites the world's opposition? Well, friends, before leaving this point, I just want to encourage you. Uh, Jesus is saying that this kind of suffering and persecution will be fairly normal for Christian experience. And I'm aware, because I know so many of you here, though there are some who I don't know, that some of you are suffering for Christ's sake in some deeply painful ways. There's alienation in the family because of your faith in Jesus Christ, your commitment to live righteously and to speak the truth, to do what is right by Jesus. You're currently experiencing pain and difficulty and hostility. I just want to encourage you, uh, you're not some Christian anomaly. If you are enduring hostility for Jesus' sake, you didn't do anything wrong. Jesus is saying this kind of thing will happen for my disciples. And it's been happening for hundreds of years. Uh, You join the company of the prophets who were before you, the noble army of martyrs, the apostles themselves, faithful Christians throughout history, your brothers and sisters here in this place. So many of us have experienced this kind of hostility. You're not alone. And what's more, our Lord goes before you in this kind of suffering. He was reviled. Peter will tell us that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps, Peter says. We are suffering as Jesus himself suffered. Maybe, maybe this is something of what Paul referred to in Philippians 3 when he talks about wanting to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That I might suffer as my Lord has suffered. No, friend, you're not alone in suffering. You have brothers and sisters who are suffering like you, and you have your Savior, the Lord Jesus, who has suffered in your place and sympathizes with you and has told you this is coming. And has said even more, blessed are you that it comes. And that leads us to our third and final point. We've seen the cause of this persecution. It is the righteous conduct of God's people rendered in obedience and allegiance to Jesus. Secondly, the nature of this persecution, it is all kinds of persecution, but maybe especially spoken persecution and reviling and false things said about believers. Now consider with me finally the Christian response to this persecution. Look again at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here's the response. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like with each of these beatitudes, Jesus pronounces blessing on these people. Those who are persecuted in this way, for this reason, he says they are blessed. They're happy. They are approved by God. They have his commendation and his approval and his smile. You say, I don't feel blessed. Trust me. And he says, but you are blessed. Jesus says, blessed are you, for great is your reward in heaven. You are blessed because there's a reward coming 
if you suffer for righteousness' sake. He's not saying you have to love the pain you're experiencing. But he says you're blessed because this means this is an indication that there is coming blessing for you, a great reward that is in heaven. And here's the response that should provoke in our hearts. He says, rejoice and be glad. The word could be translated exult. Exult. You're persecuted, put down, reviled, slandered. Exult. Rejoice. What's the Christian response to this kind of persecution? Jesus says your response to this kind of suffering and persecution when it comes, it should be rejoicing. It should be gladness. Now, let's be clear on what's being required of us here. This isn't like those later commands where Jesus will say, well, pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. I can pray for people as sheer act of the will. I could pray through a tight jaw with my teeth grinding. I could turn the other cheek with a stiff upper lip. But these verbs will not allow that kind of obedience rendered. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Make no mistake, this is about our emotions, our affections, our feelings, a kind of emotive response that wells up from within us. We rejoice, we exult, we are glad at the persecution. That's not referring to actions. That's referring to how we feel in our hearts. Well, why should we feel this way? You should feel this way because of what your suffering and persecution reveals to you. It means you're righteous. It means you're like your Lord. It means you're like the noble prophets who were before you. You're now counted among their company. And most of all, best of all, it means your reward is great in heaven. In other words, the persecution I receive for righteousness' sake, it discloses something to me. It reveals something to me. I have a great reward in heaven. I'm righteous like my Lord. I stand with Him. This persecution isn't coming to me because I have a bad personality or something. It's coming against me because my righteous attachment to Christ has provoked this kind of a reaction. And that means I'm blessed and my reward in heaven is great. Understand this here. You may be glad, like this passage calls you to be glad, and you may rejoice in this way through tears and through pain and through much affliction. This is a joy that can reside alongside deep pain. This is a kind of gladness that can exist alongside sorrow and pain that is felt in the heart. Paul said, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Jesus is not calling us in these verses. When you say rejoice and be glad, don't think that He's calling you to a kind of chipper, light, sort of momentary cheeriness that depends exactly on the absence of any kind of suffering or persecution or hostility or sorrow. No, he's talking about a far deeper joy and gladness that arises from within the depths of our souls in the midst of persecution at the realization of what our persecution means and what is coming for those who suffer for Christ's sake. 
I experience the hostility of the world, the persecution of the world, and I recognize I'm suffering in solidarity with my Lord. It's not me, it's Jesus in me that is the cause of this suffering. He approves of me. His smile is upon me. And great is my reward in heaven. This was the joy and gladness that I think was probably felt by Peter and the other apostles in Acts, maybe just a couple of years after these words were uttered. Acts 5, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Not because they were difficult or overzealous or obnoxious, but because they stood with Jesus and Jesus conferred approval upon them, blessing upon them. They were counted worthy. Their suffering revealed to them the pleasure and the blessing of God that rests upon them. Same thing was said of Paul. The crowd joined in attacking them, Acts 16, verse 22, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, many blows, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And what happened? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Suffering for Jesus' sake. They're still nursing the wounds they freshly felt. And they're singing hymns. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why? Why are Peter and the apostles rejoicing after being beaten? And why are Paul and Silas singing hymns while in prison? What is fueling their joy in the midst of seemingly terrible and painful circumstances? Now, here's the issue. If I've lost you for the last 40 minutes or so or wherever I'm at, come back for these 10 minutes, okay? Here's how this works, Christians. Jesus is saying the hope of heaven and the hope of eternal reward, and the hope of God's final approval and the pleasures forevermore that are found at his right hand that he will give to all those who, like his son, suffer for righteousness' sake, that hope of the reward to come is meant to exert a kind of power over us in the midst of our suffering. It's meant to regulate our emotions and affections in the midst of our suffering. It's meant to produce within us, when we are persecuted, feelings. Feelings, affections, emotions of joy and gladness. This is nothing short of a miracle. Someone slanders you and you're glad about it. Someone reviles you or maligns you and threatens you and you're rejoicing and singing hymns. Like this is otherworldly stuff. How is it possible? And this is what Jesus is saying. You will, Christian, respond in this way with joy and gladness at the opposition you experience. You will respond in this way if you see clearly enough and treasure deeply enough the reward that is coming. 
how will you be enabled to rejoice when reviled for Christ's sake? It will be if you see clearly enough and treasure deeply enough the reward that is coming, the reward that is ours if we suffer for Jesus' sake, if we see it clearly enough, see it clearly enough, heaven is coming, heaven's coming, glory's coming, my Jesus is coming, I see it and I believe it, by faith I know it's coming. If we see it clearly enough and if we treasure it deeply enough, I want heaven. I want his kingdom. I want the pleasures at his right hand forevermore, more than anything. I want Jesus. I want the paradise of God. I see it, and I treasure it. And it's revealed to me that it's mine as I suffer for Jesus' sake. Then the miracle will happen. Then you will rejoice. And then you will be glad because you will know your reward is great in heaven. Love what Don Carson says here. Far from being a depressing prospect is a miracle. Our suffering under persecution, which has been prompted by our righteousness, becomes a triumphant sign that the kingdom is ours. Now listen, this is crucial. Don't listen to those cynics, and sometimes you'll find them among Christian people, uh, who will suggest that the hope of heaven is presently useless for us in the here and now. Uh, they'll hear us sing songs like Glory Land, and they'll think, well, isn't that quaint and isn't that sweet? Doesn't help me now. Sure, one day we'll have pie in the sky. We'll go there when we die, and soon enough it will be ours by and by. That doesn't do anything for me now. And you will have some Christians in the midst of their suffering. You might speak up, I want to encourage you, brother, sister. It's not always going to be like this. There's coming a great reward. There's coming heaven for you. And they'll sort of roll their eyes. I know. But, but I'm suffering now. I need something now. What do you think? In the midst of your suffering, you roll your eyes at the promises of heaven? Uh, friends, if our minds and hearts are conditioned by the Bible, we'll recognize this is precisely how these promises are meant to work. Jesus is constantly encouraging us about the hope of the resurrection. Were you listening last week? First Corinthians 15, no resurrection, no everlasting life, a pointless existence we're living. This is all worthless, this is all pointless, unless there's a resurrection from the dead, unless there is the hope of heaven. It's constantly how the apostles are trying to encourage us to persevere and to press on in the midst of our suffering. Friends, it is not a quaint, silly, you know, old-time religion, gospel thing to encourage the people of God with the hope of heaven and the resurrection to come. It is the primary incentive for persevering through human suffering. And I'll say, candidly, it has been one of the most significant disappointments of my pastoral experience 
to, to see people wholly uninfluenced and unencouraged when you try to comfort them with the hope of heaven. Christians go through deep and difficult things, sorrowful things, suffering for Christ's sake, and you try to talk about the world to come, and it just has no effect. For this is what Jesus does for us. He says, think, think of the reward that is yours. Think of the hope that is coming. Friends, we will be helped more and more when we appreciate what is the shape of the Christian life. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. What's the shape of the Christian life? It's suffering and then glory. That's the shape of the Christian life. That's the shape of church history. That's the shape of Jesus' life, for goodness sakes. It's the shape of the gospel. We suffer now. We might experience glory then. It brings coherence to all of our suffering and pain. It resolves all our persecution for righteousness' sake. Suffering and then glory. It's persevering in a difficult marriage with an unbelieving spouse who makes it hard for you to be a Christian. And then glory. It's facing the opposition of the world and then heaven. It's refusing to revile in return and to respond in kind and then paradise. It's crying out over the hostility of loved ones like lost children and parents and then Jesus. It's enduring slander and reproach and then eternal peace in sinless perfection forever. It's persecution at the hands of the world and then our great reward, which is in heaven. It is suffering and then glory. Friends, there is a reward coming. I don't know exactly what you're going through. I don't need to know exactly what you're going through. I say with confidence on the foundation of God's word, great is your reward in heaven if you suffer for Jesus' sake. And so I ask, is heaven enough for you? Or must you have resolution and vindication now? Are we like petulant children? I want my good things now in this life. Or do you recognize I'm going to inherit paradise with the Lamb? That will resolve my present pain. That will heal the deepest scars that I feel. And with the confidence and hope in that reward, I persevere for Jesus' sake, knowing what lies before me. I'll close with this, because I know some of you are in this place. You say, All right, yeah, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. I know what it's like to be reviled and persecuted, to have all kinds of evil uttered against me. But it's coming from my own son. It's coming from my own mom. We've been alienated for 10 years. And I walk around at all times with like a knife in my stomach because the estrangement and alienation I have with my daughter right now is on account of my allegiance to Jesus. And you're telling me to rejoice and be glad? How can I rejoice and be glad at that? I feel that. There's two things I would say. The first is that no matter how deep your pain is, 
the reward and the joy that will be yours will outstrip it. I believe that by faith and not by sight. You say, there's no way. The wells of my suffering, my persecution, my pain, they go deep. I'm saying the joy that will be yours in heaven goes deeper still. Jesus said this to us in Mark 10. There is no one, no one who has given up father or mother or brothers and sisters who won't receive a hundredfold in the kingdom with that many persecutions. Oh, it'll be far greater. And even the pain and suffering you felt now, if it meant the greater reward would be mine. I believe that. It's coming. But there's a second thing I would say. If you don't believe in a greater joy that can outdo and outrun and outpace the greatest sufferings of this life, you have nothing to offer your unbelieving son or daughter. You have nothing to offer the parent from whom you are estranged. What good is your Christianity if it can't resolve the greatest sufferings in this life? You have joy that is hid for you in God. You have pleasures forevermore that can outstrip anything that we experience in this life. That are better than any of the joys this world has to offer. And it's that joy you can offer to that family member you're estranged from. I have Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. And that joy that will be mine in his presence is far deeper than any pain I can experience in this life. And I offer it to you. You suffering today? Persecuted? You cast down? Maybe you're not being persecuted for righteousness sake, but we all suffer. We all suffer. The gospel offers resolution to our suffering and all the pain that we experience and feel. The gospel tells us there is eternal life for all those who hope in Jesus Christ, God's own Son, and it is coming. Great is the reward in heaven for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray, we pray that you would do the miracle in us now, right now. Help us to see clearly enough and to treasure deeply enough the reward that is ours in Christ. And Please give to my brothers and sisters, give to us all joy and gladness even in the midst of great pain and great sorrow because we have Christ we have his promise. We have his gospel. We have the great reward in heaven that is coming. Excite us with that prospect. May it sustain our faith. May it help us to persevere and to endure in the midst of the hostility we all as your people experience. Please, Lord, I pray that each one, each one of us here who are your people would see vindicated with our eyes It may be resurrected eyes, but that we would see vindicated this passage, that all suffering for Christ's sake was worth it for the reward that is before us, for the prize of Christ and everlasting life with Him. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, and please give us that full promise in your good time.
We pray together in Jesus' name.